I mean, you got to have the jitters here. Kind of bats to keep you in the major leagues. 2 2. The Zika hits one slowly up the line. The shovel holds. Not in time, and the Mets win it. Patrick Mazika plays hero in the bottom of the 10th. Hi, this is Emily Nyman, and you're listening to Breaking Balls. Welcome to episode 59 of Breaking Balls. I'm your host, Emily Nyman. I'm joined by my co-host, John Snyder. You can find us on Twitter, at BreakBallsPod. Or if you're feeling brassy, give the Breaking Balls hotline a call. 631-820-7377. Turns out it doesn't matter when we record, everybody, because no matter what, something, I guess I could say amazing, it's been pretty amazing, something amazing happens. Not just a good game, but... A no-hitter, and this one was a no-hitter times two. Happened basically immediately after we recorded last week. Well, you know what? I I thought the timing was actually perfect because the first one happened the day after our new recording date, and then the second one happened the day after our old recording date. So truly, there was nothing we could do. There was no hiding from this. I'll say this. it, it, It is pretty special, though. It is amazing because we're currently on the highest pace as far as no hitters goes in over 100 years right now. Just crazy. The last time that there's been this many no-hitters this earlier in the season was like 1917 or something like that. Yeah, I mean, to be completely honest, it's watering them down when they're happening like every week and now twice a week, it seems like. I'm at the point where I'm like, oh, another no-hitter? Who gives a shit? And not for nothing. You know what else waters it down a little bit? And I know <laughs> this is kind of fucked up because like it should be a no-hitter is great automatically, right? Like Wade Miley threw a no-hitter? Like, the, the guy does not throw hard to begin with. And, not for nothing, it was the second one against the Indians this year, which I don't know if that says more about the Indians than it does about any given pitcher throwing a no-hitter against them. Lindsay Adler of The Athletic, she put out an interesting article the other day in regards to the slow offense of the Yankees, and then she broadened to say about the league. Yeah, Because it's everywhere. that's what's happening. We talked about that last week. But an interesting piece of the puzzle that I never considered is, you know, a big thing this year was that they deadened the ball because there was too many home runs. They deadened the ball. An unintended consequence of that so far is because the ball is lighter. So because of that, it's giving more movement to pitches. Fastballs are staying up longer in the zone, which, of course, makes them harder to hit. And the breaking stuff is dropping. The the vertical drop is even more pronounced than it's ever been. So as if the pitchers didn't have enough of an advantage, now this new ball has not only made it more difficult to hit home runs, but it's also making pitchers even better. Good job, Manfred. Well, and I'll say this, it's definitely a little comforting that we're seeing a trend that, like, it's not any of our individual given teams. You know what I mean? Like, there's not anything wrong with anybody. It's league-wide. It's happening everywhere. And for some of us whose teams just happen to have built with, you know, pitching heavy and it's kind of nice not gonna not gonna lie but you know we'll get into that later it is having effects or consequences or whatever you want to call them but i don't know that it's exactly what they were going for when they changed the ball composition no and, and to be honest there are exceptions to this because on this last homestand the yankees finally they went seven and two yay it was awesome it was really they had some great wins in there they had some tough losses but who gives a shit they won seven out of out of their 10 or nine games that they played at home and Stanton continued to mash he dipped a little bit but then he came back had a game winner the other day and speaking of really good pitching 
Max Scherzer pitched game two of their series against the Yankees this weekend, and he was lights out. I mean, he 7.1 innings pitched, two hits, one run, one walk, and 14 strikeouts. Now, that was a record for Yankee Stadium. There's never been an away pitcher to come to the new stadium and strike out 14 guys. So you would think that when he hands the ball over to his bullpen in the seventh inning with a lead, the game's over, right? Wrong. The bullpen blew the game. Brad Hand blew two save opportunities in one game. And I was just left. I literally laughed when they pushed that winning run across the plate in like the 11th inning. I laughed because... They stole that game. They had no business winning that game. It was ugly. It was boring. I fell asleep in like the fifth inning for like almost an hour because the game was literally putting me to sleep. And then they snuck in and they took the W and hey, goes down as a W in the book. Doesn't matter if it was sloppy. You know what, man? That's that's how the Nats are. You know, first and foremost, like, yeah, hi, that's Max Scherzer. Try having to face him like three, four or five times <laughs> a year. It sucks. He's really fucking good. And the Nats, like, that's why their nickname is, you know, Nats with a G, because they are just annoying and they don't go away and they just keep... I mean, you saw the way those last two games ended. And by the way, brief aside, anytime the Yankees can take a, a series away from one of the Mets and at least opponents, I'll take it. So thank you for that. That was very nice. But, you know, those two wins, that's what it's like playing the Nationals, man. They are they are pesky. They are persistent. They, they just keep chipping away and they, they keep hanging with you, you know? But yeah, two very exciting finishes. And any, like you said, anytime you can get a win off of Scherzer, that's fucking huge. Interestingly, I had heard, I don't know if there's any credence to this at all. I had heard somebody say something to the effect of like, I wonder if on any level is Scherzer thinking of this as kind of like a showcase game, you know, as in winding up on the Yankees, you know, trade deadline or next season or something like that. I would be more inclined to believe that if he didn't pitch like this on the regular. Right. He's been pitching like this throughout his entire contract. So probably not. He's always like this. He's a he's a gamer. And something that was interesting, actually, though, speaking of him being a gamer, when Dave Martinez came out of the dugout to take him out of the game, and at this point, like I just said, he was cruising, and he was in the middle of the seventh inning. There was only one out. They panned the camera to Scherzer, and you could see him clearly mouth to Martinez, yup, it's time, in agreement with the manager that, yeah, I'm ready to come out of the game. And I really appreciated it because a few days earlier in the third game against the Astros, Cole was on the mound. He pitched really well through seven innings and Boone took him out. They had a one run lead. So naturally, that's when you give the ball to someone in your pen. In this case, it's Chad Green, who's been a great reliever for us out of the pen. He ended up not having it. He blew the game. And then, of course, everyone in hindsight is saying, oh, why'd Boone take Cole out? He was cruising. He had only, you know, less than 100 pitches, blah, blah, blah. And of course, it's hindsight bias. But Seeing Scherzer mouth that to Martinez was almost validating in that these guys know when they're gassed. And just because they're taken out of the game and just because they have it right then, pitchers always have it until suddenly they don't. And then it's, oh, why didn't the manager take him out of the game? So in the case with Cole, it was just... All we do is use hindsight bias in these moments because no one would have said anything about Cole being removed from that game had Chad Green done his job and shut down the offense and then Chapman would have come in and closed the game. But if you can't hand the ball to your bullpen, especially the Yankees have the best bullpen in the league, if you can't hand the ball to your bullpen in the eighth inning at home with a lead, then why even have it? What's the point of having the bullpen then? What's the point of having the best bullpen? That's the moment for Chad Green. Right. I was going to say, isn't it such a coincidence that when a manager makes a bullpen move and it works out, 
that's the move that everybody would have done. But when it doesn't work, then, you know, he's an idiot for doing it. And it's just because it doesn't work doesn't mean it was a bad call necessarily. It could still be the best call with the information that you have at the time. Um, and, you know, it, kind, it just comes back to that whole thing with fans where, like, they really put too much stock in what we're able to see, you know, on TV with the players on the field in the dugout. Yeah, it's not that those interactions are not meaningful. They certainly are, and there's stuff to be gleaned from them. But to say that that's the entirety of their relationships and the interaction, like, that's insane. Like, if you think there's not communication behind the scenes that we're not seeing, you know, I mean, when they pull a guy before they think that we, you know, before we think that they should, it's like, what the fuck do we know? Comparatively, not much, not nearly as much as you think that you know. You know, over the years, something that's always been said as far as pitchers and, and kids who grow up and are pitchers that, you know, they shouldn't throw breaking pitches until they get older because it's really bad for their elbow. Right. Where now that we know a lot more about the human body and the sort of force that pitching is putting on the body, it's not the pitches that you throw, it's how many pitches you throw. It has nothing to do with what type of pitch it is anymore. That's that's an antiquated thought process as far as human body is concerned and, and keeping pitchers healthy. So because we know that now, I mean, every single pitch is putting an enormous amount of force on the pitcher's elbow, on their shoulder, on their wrist. So it's all about workload. And I know that pisses people off, but try to remember that it's not the pitches that they throw, it's how many. And that's why teams are so obsessed, for lack of a better term, with the pitch count especially early in the season because Cole could have thrown nothing but breaking pitches and it wouldn't have necessarily put any more force or or put him at further risk for injury than if he had thrown nothing but straight fastballs all day. But the number of pitches is what matters. And you know, it's funny you bring that up because very recently I came across an article about Carl Hubble, who was a pitcher for the Giants, I think like 30s, 40s, right? A long time ago back when they were the New York Giants. And Hubble's famous pitch was his screwball. He was a lefty and, you know, that outward turning motion that you got to do with your left hand. And his arm became permanently crooked from throwing it. And for years, that was, you know, the the common knowledge was that, oh, well, it's because he threw the screwball. And now with modern medical technology, people are reevaluating. It's like, well, how many innings did he throw? And they go back and look, and it's insane workloads. Just, you know, throw in nine innings every four or five days. Like, it doesn't matter what you're throwing. It matters how often you're throwing it. And so that's that was always the one that I heard growing up was like, oh, yeah, you can't you say what happened to Carl Hubble. And that, that conventional wisdom, quote unquote, has been rethought by a lot of the leading minds now. And the league clearly felt bad about it. And that's why they named the telescope after him. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Just kidding. The Hubble telescope is not named after that guy. I don't know who it was named after. Probably someone named Hubble, I would imagine. You're killing me, Smalls! Speaking of the stars, Emily, <laughs> your boy is uh, is making headlines again these days. Oh, well, not really your boy. Uh, your boy's ex-girl. And, I mean, DJ Bingington, you don't necessarily have to play vindicated by Dashboard Confessional when I say this. But there is a little vindication here because the assumption was that A-Rod must have cheated. He must have fucked this relationship up. How could he do that? It's J-Lo, blah, blah, blah. And hey, I was ready to believe it. I was right there with everybody that, yeah, he probably did. But we're all 
now supposed to believe that Jennifer Lopez was never talking to her ex, but suddenly, three weeks after she breaks up with her fiancé, she's now back with Ben Affleck? I mean... If A-Rod wasn't down bad before, he has to be down super bad because I've seen some pictures of Ben Affleck recently outside of his home, those horrible paparazzi pictures, and granted, no one ever really looks that good, but he looks rough in them. So A-Rod's probably like, what the fuck did I do? Well, see, my big takeaway is that we get the upgraded portmanteau from J-Rod to Benifer, which is, is way better as far as a celebrity combo name. And also, it sounds like a shitty Pokemon. Like J Rod evolved into Benifer. <laughs> Benifer, Benifer. We got you. I never understood the obsession with like the need to make these celebrity names. Like, can we not? Can we just call them by their name? Do we have to join it? Is it really taking that much time to say both? <laughs> Is that what we need shorthand for? <laughs> There's no time. So now the Yankees are in Tampa. They're playing in that dump, Tropicana, for a few games. They're in the middle of game one right now. Tampa looks sloppy in the beginning of the game, but these series, even though they're only three games, they tend to be pretty long down there because that stadium is a nightmare. So obviously I'm hoping they take another series because now they've won every series for the last three. And I just don't want anyone to get hurt. That's really all I care about. Someone always gets hurt and is on the aisle for like months after playing there. So if we have to drop three in a row, but everyone comes out of there healthy, I'm almost like, this is almost like a win-win. Well, you know, I mean, through some sloppy reporting, I almost thought that you guys weren't <laughs> going to be playing the game today because suddenly out of nowhere, I'm hearing like five of your coaches have COVID suddenly. And then it turns out it's one. What the fuck was that? I know. Marley Rivera of ESPN. She, you know, because all these reporters, they're all super horny to have it first. Like they'd rather have it first than have it right which is weird to me because what's the point of having it first if it's not going to be correct information? That's what I got sick of in the off season was everyone was so obsessed with being first on the trade and not giving a shit about accuracy. And in this case, it's totally irresponsible because of how polarizing the vaccination has been for her to tweet that five coaches and, and the entire coaching staff for the Yankees have been vaccinated. So for her to tweet that without having confirmed that in the middle of a public health crisis is completely irresponsible. And as of recording time, this was 8.52 on Tuesday night, she still hadn't deleted the tweet that she had tweeted like five hours ago. And it's like, you know what, lady, you're the worst. You know, I, I don't want to speak in too much of a blanket statement because there are exceptions. There are definitely solid baseball journalists. And if you pay attention, you know who they are. We're not going to go through a list right now, but a lot of them suck. And especially in the New York baseball media, well, New York sports media, really, but, you know, we're a baseball show. So we'll narrow our focus a little bit there. A lot of them suck so hard. And they are especially not dealing well with the transition of the Mets from perennial jokes with Will Ponds to, I mean, I don't want to say that we're fully out of it yet because, you know, they're still hanging on. You know, we'll get into this in a sec. They are clawing and trying to hang on to that narrative as you know, now the Cohen era Mets are kind of slowly shedding that, uh, you know, that kind of reputation, which is great. And what we're talking about here, of course, is the saga of the rat coon. <laughs> the, I, the Spark Notes version is uh, 
During the game last week, Francisco uh, Lindor and Jeff McNeil got heated and there was some kind of altercation in the tunnel between the clubhouse and the dugout. The Mets players saw something happening. They rushed down the tunnel. Um, it was out of the view of the cameras. So we, you know, we didn't know. Lindor came out of the tunnel and immediately hit a home run. So whatever happened, it couldn't have been that bad, right? But anyway, after the game, so the media, this part, they're doing their job. You got to ask what happened, right? Clearly, you know, the cameras followed it. Something occurred. You're doing your job by asking. Nobody begrudges you that. Lindor emphatically comes out with this story about, oh yeah, man, me and McNeil were having an argument, but it was about whether uh, we saw an animal in the, in the tunnel. We didn't know if it was a rat or if it was a raccoon. Clearly he's lying. Clearly the story is just, it's not hard to read between the lines here. And those lines are, hey, we handled it, it's over, fuck off, we're not gonna tell you what happened. The media could not let this go, man. They were so pissed. And I really think it comes down to, they are suffering the effects of the Wilpons don't own the Mets anymore. They are not getting leaked cheap information in exchange for favorable, favorable coverage, excuse me. And they're getting super defensive about it. They're relying on, you know, if we have drama and associated with the Mets, we'll get, you know, we'll get clicks because of the LOL Mets narrative. And the stuff is just not legitimate anymore. I'll be the first one to tell you that, like, you know, over the past decade, two decades, we've deserved it, man. <laughs> More often than not, the LOL Mets stuff was real. But it doesn't have the same weight to it anymore, and they are not letting it go. And I'm really proud of Lindor and McNeil and the Mets because this is an entertainment product, so there are things that are for public consumption, but... At the end of the day, they are still a team of grown-ass men, some of the most highly competitive people on the planet, and especially when some of those guys are slumping, which Lindor certainly was and McNeil was. McNeil was too, yeah. Tensions run very, very high, so I'm not surprised that they had a bit of a dust-up in the tunnel because all it takes, you know, Lindor's on edge, his first series, like, in front of a home crowd, and he's still grounding out, flying out, striking out. So right. all it could have taken is one of them saying one errant comment to the other, and the other one's like, what? And this is obviously all conjecture on my part, but you got to assume it's something like that because then it was over by the end of the night. So it was something quick. Both of them are pissed off. They got it out of their system, and they both hit dingers. Well, it's worth remembering too, you know, clubhouses are a balance of personalities, right? And there's going to be guys on different ends of the spectrum from, you know, fiery hotheads to, you know, cool and collected guys that, you know, and that's, you got Michael Conforto is like a super just even killed guy. Lindor and McNeil are both on that fiery, passionate end of the spectrum. And so it doesn't surprise me that they butted heads, you know? And I mean, there was also the optics of there was that play that it looked like there was a miscommunication on uh, right before that happened. So the immediate conjecture was that that's what caused it. But you know what, man? Media, you did your job by trying to find out, but you got to let it go after a certain point because that is the story. The story is that it was handled. They're clearly telling you to fuck off. And not for nothing, when Zach Scott, the GM, and Rojas, the manager, were asked about it, they played their part well, too, which was they were serious about it. They didn't feed into the story, but they also were just kind of like, yeah, it's, you know, it's clubhouse business. We're not getting into that. Clearly, it was handled. If we thought it was something we needed to talk to them about, we would. And that's the end of it. Like, the Mets are, we're starting to play well again, man. Things are warming up. Our pitching staff has been killing it. Our bullpen has been lights out. Our bats are starting to wake up. There's so many different stories there, but it's not the LOL Mets story. And so the media is crying about it, and I love it. And speaking of big reveals, remember the whole Donnie Stevenson thing, the fictional Mets hitting coach? Turns out it was Pete Alonzo in a hat and sunglasses, just trying to lighten the mood at a hitter's meeting and telling them like, yeah, you know, stop overthinking it. Keep it simple. Just swing at balls in the zone, you know, and it worked. 
Now, in retrospect, it's obvious that it was him because during that press conference, when they asked him, when they were like, oh, so there's oh, a new yeah, coach, and he yeah. was like, well, they were like, what's his name? He's like, Donnie. And like, what's his last name? And he was like, literally, uh... Uh, and then said, oh, for a few seconds, someone kept and asked another question. And then he interrupted himself and was like, oh, wait, Stevenson. Yeah, clearly it's his character to, to add to the backstory <laughs> on the fly. <laughs> but yeah, man, at the end of the day, this this team is fun. There's a lot, you know, the Mets always have more storylines than just the baseball being played. But this year they're fun and they seem to come from a place of like camaraderie and guys getting along and wanting to be there and the organization just being in a better place it's being reflected as as much as the media types are fighting it it's being reflected in what we're seeing and it's awesome um and speaking of reflection of the old regime oh no here we go <laughs> who was making their debut this week yeah, for yeah, the mariners yeah. jared kelenic is coming up for the mariners and you know what honestly i'm there's too many Mets fans that are just latching on to the fact that he was our prospect. And yeah, he was. And yeah, it would be great to have him in center field. But we don't. But you know what, man? That was the old regime. The big bad man is gone. He can't hurt you anymore. You know, BVW's <laughs> out. Volpons are out. I'm, I'm rooting for the kid, man. Because you know what? Not for totally. nothing. He's in the other league. He's on the other side of the country. Like, does it suck not having him? Sure. But... I'll say this, if because of that, you're unable to enjoy how good Edwin Diaz has been, that's a problem, man. Like, you got to get over it. You know, we have the players we have. Cano, I mean, not for nothing, we got a great year of Cano last year when he was on steroids. He exactly. got popped. He's not there this year. McNeil is playing a great second base. Cano comes back with one year in his contract, and it's a win-win. Either he does steroids again, and he puts up good numbers, <laughs> or he does steroids again, and he gets caught, and McNeil gets to play second base. So honestly, it didn't work out that poorly for us. We have an elite closer now, and, you know, yeah, the Mariners got a good prospect, but, you know, new ownership is in town. That's, again, that to me, even though it's recent, it's relatively old news. And also, if you didn't have Diaz... Who would have been the closer this year? Because you have to assume that the Wilpons wouldn't have really made any other moves. So it's not like, right. oh, if they didn't do that, then they would have went and got this guy. Probably Honestly, not. So probably Familia, like, who's only doing as well as he is because he's not closing, because exactly. he's in the setup role. Exactly. That you were able to say, okay, Familia's gassed as a closer. He doesn't have it. Batances is hurt again. And also he's kind of lost it. And I don't think he'll ever get it back. I hope he does because I loved Batances. He had his issues, but he's a good guy. He's a homegrown yeah. guy. He's from New York. So I, I wish him the best. But when you have a staff that has Jacob deGrom on it, you better have a fucking closer like Edwin Diaz. There are not that many elite yeah. closers in this league, and he's one of them. So be happy. Right. It... it yeah, the inability to enjoy what we have is is frustrating. Speaking of the inability to enjoy what we have, one last thing on the Mets. Jacob deGrom did wind up hitting the the uh, the injured list this week. He started his game, looked great through four innings, but felt some tightness in the fifth, fell apart a little bit. I mean, Jacob deGrom falling apart is giving up one run. So, <laughs> um, But, you know, he felt some tightness in his side, and they're... What's crazy, you want to go back to the media being dickheads about this. The Mets are finally doing the right thing, being careful with their closer, being precautionary, like, hey, you know, no, he's not. No, the MRI came back clean, but we're going to put him on the IL anyway. He's going to miss a start. He's going to rest up. He's going to come back 100%. All the, you know, all these types, John Heyman, Buster Olney, you know, Tim Healy, all these guys just coming at him with all this crap like, oh, well, you know, what does that really mean, though? Yeah. What's the source of the tightness? And he kept Buster kept on asking that to every single person on Twitter. Where was this level of scrutiny when the Wilpons owned the team? 
you know, when Mickey Calloway was harassing women, you know, when the Wilpons were doing all the bullshit that they were, you know, it, it's so it's so obvious to everyone who's watching what the deal is, and they're just floundering and just fighting it as hard as they can. It's so sad. Yeah, Buster only blew a fucking gasket because no one yeah. would tell him what the source of the tightness was, but Mickey Calloway still has a job with the Angels. He hasn't been fired yet. So let that sink in, everybody. Not to be cheesy with that saying, but let that sink in. Everyone's flipping out about the Mets and rats in the tunnel and this bullshit. And this fucking predator still has a job with a Major League Baseball team. He's just being suspended right now with pay. Give me a fucking break. Can you imagine these reporters if they had to, and I use that term lightly, if they had to cover something serious? Like if they were covering like world politics or like something something like that? Like this, this is light shit, not for nothing. This is just sports and they lose their shit and they can't handle it. Well, they would be the ones that like when, remember when Obama wore that tan suit and they were like, tan oh my God. suit, how dare tan he? Tan suit. Was it a great poupon? We have some sad news to report. Is it the fact that Patrick Mazika has two RBIs and a walk-off and no Major League hits yet? Sorry, just wanted to reference the opening. You keep going. That and <laughs> Tom's River's own, a Little League World Series champion, Todd, the Todd father, Frazier, has been designated for assignment by the Pittsburgh Pirates. <laughs> I tweeted this out. You know how I know that Steve Cohen owns the Mets now? The Todd father was not immediately picked up by the Mets upon being DFA'd by the Pirates. <laughs> yeah, he's not batting fifth tonight for the Mets. Yeah, I don't have to hear about him. Hey, did you know, fun fact about Todd Frazier, um, he was in the Little League World Series. <laughs> he once met Derek Jeter when he was a small child. Oh, my God. And in the sub-headline... Major League Baseball legend Albert Pujols was also DFA'd this week, or rather he was released Jeff by the said Angels. That, that that's the sub-headline. I know. It, it's, it's actually the headline. I'm just joking. Uh, a lot of people were upset by this, and, and you know what? At first, I was sort of like, Pujols is a big, he's a big boy. He can handle it. You know, it's not like they do this without letting the player know and having discussions with him. It's not like it's he's blindsided with it, but... I was very upset when the Yankees did the same thing to A-Rod in 2016 to the point that I was like, fuck the Yankees. Like, I can't believe they're doing this to him, blah, blah, blah. Even though he was washed. And now, in retrospect, I get it. And I understand why Pujols and Pujols stands are upset by it. But I also understand why the Angels are like, dude, sorry. Like, we don't really have room for you. We have a young stud coming up and he's ready. Sorry about that. You're washed. You're lucky that we signed you to that contract when you were like 35, 10-year contract. Give me a break. Well, I mean, clearly the Angels didn't do it right just with the level of miscommunication. Like, you know, when they talked to Trout about it, he said, like, I didn't know, and I, I cried. Like, he, he was crying about Aww. it because, well, because think about it. Pujols has been there the entire time he has, you know? Um, we, we look at the Angels as the second half of Pujols' career and, you know, the lesser half of Pujols' career. But it was all of Mike Trout's career in Anaheim, you know, so they're they're close, man. So that's that's rough. And, you know, it it also sucks because I don't know if you remember, but when he first signed with the Angels, one of the things that Pujol said was, you know, I'm I'm when, when I can't do this anymore, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to go out. I'm not going to drag it on that kind of thing. And, you know, the, those are nice words to say at the time. But the reality of it is the same kind of mindset that gets you to the major leagues, you know, that believing in yourself, that level of self-confidence and everything, that's what prevents most players from knowing when it is time. And I think that's what happened with Pujols, you know? It's been, not for nothing, it's been time for the last few years now. Dude's been putting up negative war, like he's not contributing. But 
he's still Albert Pujols. You know what I mean? And he knows that he's Albert Pujols. So that, that's a tough thing to let go of. You got to feel for the guy. Totally. And that's a, that's a unique thing for just players like Pujols, A-Rod, all of these all-time greats because every other player... They never get a contract. They don't get that second contract. Right. They get the first. If if they're good enough, they'll get that first big one. They'll sign it when they're 26 to you know 30 years old, and it'll usually take them to the end of their career. But guys like Pujols, guys like A-Rod, they can get that contract again, or they can renegotiate an extension to get that contract that brings them into their 40s. And like you said, you understand why they don't get it. And I can't, I can't remember exactly what he said right now, but that same week that A-Rod was released, he, when he had the press conference saying that he was going to retire, because the Yankees gave him the choice. They said, we're going to release you, so you could either retire or we're just going to straight up release you. So he chose to retire. And in his press conference, he said something to the effect of, you know, no player ever wants to stop playing. And a lot of times you don't know when your time has come. It's hard to really assess that as the player. And you need someone else to do it for you. And unfortunately, it comes off as cold because this is a business and this is a competitive business. So as a fan, it's like, oh, how could they do pool holes like that? And Martinez, uh, Pedro Martinez said the same thing. He was upset about how they did pool holes like that. But think of it this way, everybody. The Angels have the best player of a generation on their team. Mike Trout is on their team. How can they do pull holes like that? Well, how can the Angels do Trout like that and keep the corpse of Albert Pujols out there just to trot around for another year if they have someone young who can come up and make this team better? Maybe we should start thinking of it from that angle because Pujols has had his time. Now, the Angels should, and they should have all this time, be focusing on Trout and building a winner around him. And if that means releasing a 47-year-old Albert Pujols, then so be it. And, I mean, obviously he's not on the same level as Trout because nobody is, but I would throw Otani heavily into that conversation as well. For sure. The fact that you lucked into that kind of, I mean, yeah, I would just say generational superstar, you know, not in the way that Trout is, in his own unique, you know, two-way way that Otani is. Get them the fuck out of Los Angeles, man. Like, if the, if that's what the Angels are going to do, just get, get them out of there. I, it's it's ridiculous. And, you know, not for nothing, especially with a guy like Pujols, you hope that despite the circumstances and you can't really fault the angels for doing this you know because like you said they have to at least try to be competitive you know you at least got to have the facade of being competitive i hope that one way or the other they figure out a way to send them off correctly and that's you know it's a big ask to, some some people are saying well you already said it's this last year you know get the cardinals to sign and it's like the cardinals are competitive this year they're not going to waste and you know I, I hate using that term when it comes to albert pujols but they're not going to waste a roster spot on a Pujols just dragging him around the country on a farewell tour. That's not going to happen. I think best case scenario is maybe you invite him to spring training, give him a one-day contract, send him out in early April after opening day next year. Something like that. You know, give give him one last nice opportunity with the fans because God knows he deserves all of that, but he's also long past the point where you can comfortably do a farewell tour of playing and contributing. He, he can't anymore. And I mean, look at how Derek Jeter looked in that last year. They trotted him out there almost every game and he got his pomp and circumstance that that whole farewell tour for that entire year, but he was terrible. He was not he should not have been playing shortstop. And listen, did it tarnish his legacy? No. He's still Derek Jeter. He's still uh, an all-time great, a legend, but Looking back on that year, it's like, was it worth it? So you could like get a surfboard with your name on it from like the fucking Angels or the or the Padres or wherever they played that would give him a gift. Like, 
they can send it to your house. Just have the game, have one game, wave your little hat, and then call it a career. <laughs> well, and then, you know, one last positive comparison to A-Rod. I can't believe I said that Ooh. sentence out loud. Well, think about, I'm thinking how close that they were to that 700 home run mark. And A-Rod was even closer than Pujols was. And credit to A-Rod, he was what, like four or five away? Four. And he didn't chase it. I wouldn't be surprised if Pujols tries to get on some team that's not going at, you know, get on the uh, you know the Tigers as a DH or something. You know what I mean? Some team that's not doing anything just to try and limp into the finish line. I'm not hoping for that, but I don't know. I have trouble seeing him just sitting on his ass for the rest of the season. I feel like somebody's going to find use for him. So yesterday I had the pleasure of being on the Section 420 Talking Yankees with James Zeiss. And we talked some Yankees. We, we talked about umping. We talked about the accuracy. And this was on public access television. Now, he told me he was going to let me know when it's going to air. But this is like my first TV spot. And I'm a little nervous to see it. I may not even watch it because I can barely listen to this show and hear myself talk, let alone watch myself talk. I, I don't know. I'm nervous about it, everybody. But it was fun. You should all check it out. And I'll tweet about it whenever we release it. Now let's get right into the voicemails. Our first voicemail is from Michael, the food guy. The day after Mother's Day, I got to get used to these Monday phone calls. One of the worst days of the year for the food guy. After a week of Mother's Day in restaurants. Uh, anyway, missed a lot of Yankee games, but got to see a lot of highlights. And, you know, we've been the gift and the curse. We did some winning. Everybody got excited. And then we lost a couple and everybody got sad. And then we had two straight walk-offs versus the Nationals and stole a win from Max Scherzer. I feel like the team's doing pretty good. Seven on the homestand. Uh, podcast is doing great as well. Keep it coming, guys. I feel like we're turning a corner. And speaking of turning the corner, I was just informed by our producer that Gary Sanchez went apo taco and hit a home run, and the Yankees are leading 3-1 versus the Rays in game one of the series. We should hire Michael the Food Guy to do little like spark notes summaries of like the week for the team because he summarized so well but it took us like 10 minutes 15 minutes to get through you're like suggesting you're like why don't we just have michael the food guy just replace us and just do 30 second vignettes of every <laughs> of the season michael thank you so much for your call our next call is from boobock hey oh kiddos boobock let's just get into it even under new ownership it's still as metsy as it getsy the only bull spit story the PR crew can come up with is to make City Field sound like a rat-infested dump. Come on, man. I'm sorry, Snyder. Gonna deep dive into the Breaking Balls VM archive. Many moons ago, we had the great mayonnaise miracle whip debate. This season, I keep hearing about Mike's amazing mayonnaise on the Yes Network. So tell me, East Coasters, is Mike's amazing mayonnaise really that amazing? I asked my local grocery store, the guy told me he's never heard of it. Help him Midwest guy out. All right. Enough mumbling. Love you guys. Boobock out. On the first part of your voicemail, Boobock, I thought the same exact thing as you did about them saying that there was some rodent argument at City Field. And as far as the second part, I've never heard of that mayo. I am Hellman's or die, basically. So, one, there's no way the PR crew approved of that. That was definitely just the team coming up with something. Zach Scott was even like, uh, I don't think that they handled it as well as they could have. But yeah, no, so that, that was not the PR team. Number two, uh, what, what are that mayo was? Mike's mayo? Was, I, I've never heard of that either. Um, listen, you better uh, bring out Hellman's and bring out the best. Bring out the Hellman's and bring out the best. 
or get the fuck out of my house and we're not having mayonnaise. Um, it, I, it's similar as like Heinz when it comes to ketchup. It's like Heinz or we're not having ketchup. It's like that with mayo. Hellman's or, or we're not having mayo. <laughs> Bubak, thank you so much for your call. Our next call is from Shadow Strows. Hey, Mr. Hellman. Uh, this is uh, at, well, I, get, I don't even know what my ad is anymore. The Shadow or Shadow Strow. But anyway, yeah, I just, uh, you know, I just want to comment on Yankees with uh, the names on the back of the jerseys and how I support this because, you know, we need to see Frankie have more and more meltdowns. And uh, I always said I was going to call in, so I did. Have a good day. Well, Shadow, first of all, I'm psyched that you called in. You said you would, and you did. I love that sort of consistency. I used to feel very strongly about the names on the back of the jerseys, but now as I've gotten older, I'm like, who the fuck cares? I, I get why people want the name, because when you don't have the name, then it could be for anybody. I mean, look at 25. It was Giambi, then it was Teixeira, now it's Glaber. So I can understand why if Glaber Torres is your favorite player, why you would want the jersey with 25 and Torres on the back, because that's the player that you got it for. So I can understand that. And I'm a jersey person, personally. I don't ever buy actual jerseys, and the jerseys always have the name on the back. So. I was kind of in a glass house throwing stones when I would give people shit for having a name on the back of the jersey while I was wearing a t-shirt that had the name on the back. My two cents on that is uh, I think that no names on the back are awesome when it's your team and you know the players because it's a really clean look, but you also can recognize them. And it's annoying as fuck when you're playing against a team without names on the back and you don't know the players and you have no idea who's pitching and who's up and all that stuff. And I love that, you know, people, their defense of it is always like, well, you know, you're playing for the name on the front, not on the back. And it's like, all right, that's true. But these guys are the product of this entertainment product. So a lot of people are coming to see them in particular, not necessarily just the team. So let's not pretend. Let's not pretend like this is some fucking club team and, and you're focusing on teamwork and shit. Right. Yeah. If we start putting names on the back of umpire shirts, that's a different conversation. <laughs> Shadow Stro, thank you so much for your call. Our last call is from Dave. Nyman and Snyder, it's Dave. How's it going? Love the pod change on the day. So we got some exciting baseball this past weekend. Another no-hitter. How about that? Rat, raccoon. That was exciting stuff. I don't want to talk about any of that, though. What I do want to talk about is, uh, you know, last month we were saying it's only April, and now we've begun the it's only May. So the question is, when does it really count? Like when, and the same thing with a player. Like when is a player a bona fide star? Like, I know there was a lot of uh, agita over Tatis being catapulted to the front. I think he's the real deal, personally. But, you know, Pete Alonso is struggling, and it makes you wonder, at what point is a player, like, arrived and bona fide as opposed to just a rising star that could possibly the league could adjust to or whatnot? And uh, when does it stop being it's just May, and when is it for real? Because people keep expecting the Red Sox and a couple of other teams to just drop off, and they don't seem to be wanting to do that. Anyway... I love the pod. Keep it up. I love all the Twitter banter. Keep it up. I'll keep liking them all. And, uh, oh, my bartender question of the week is, if you got paid a million dollars to be a diehard crazy fan of one team, but you were allowed to pick one team that you could out of, out of, out, out of, what team would you put into that category that you could never, ever be a fan of? Thanks, guys. Take care. 12 seconds later. <laughs> I forgot. I didn't uh, Say what team I would definitely never ever ever be a fan of it's the Phillies I fucking hate the Phillies I've always hated them I always will I hate all the fans of Philadelphia I fucking hate the Phillies
Thanks. As far as when does a player arrive and when are they a bona fide star, I think that depends on the team because it's not surprising that Tatis is already a bona fide star in San Diego despite only playing a total of like 162 games across a few seasons because they've not really had much going on over there for a long time. So it takes just a few spurts of greatness for him to be great. And I agree. I think that he's going to be continue to be great, but I understand why that kicked up so quickly. But on a team like the Yankees and even the Mets, it takes more than just like a few months. Like I, I'd say after a season, that's when someone on the Yankees or the Mets would be, the fan bases would say, you know what, this guy's a fucking star and he's our star and we're going to expect highly of him moving forward. So Dave, I got to be honest. I mean, you know, the whole it's only April thing held water, but I'm not really hearing a lot of people say in a serious way, it's only May, uh, because this is the time when things start to codify into being what they are, you know, like the Red Sox are starting to look pretty legit, you know, and a lot of those things that we said it's only April to have come around to some extent, you know, even like, you know, you mentioned Alonzo. Well, Alonzo was hot and then he cooled down. So I don't know if that's really a perfect example. In the bigger picture, I think really it's almost like to the all-star break, you know, because really the first half of the season is kind of thought of as more of a solid thing than the second half. You know what I mean? In that, like, the second half, that's when you have your pennant races and your wild card races and everything, and it seems like it's more stretched out. And then at that time, we're just talking about, like, in summation. Like, well, how'd they do in the first half? You know, like, it's so... I think we're still at the point where it's like, you got to get into May, into June, really into the all-star break before it's like, all right, now we have an idea of what's going on. Let's see if people, you know, if a team can change their fortunes or continue doing what they're doing for the second half of the season. Yeah, so we're kind of in a nebulous point right now where it's like, yeah, it does have more credence than it did in April, but it's still really early, man. We still have to be patient. We're not even a third through the season yet. And as far as your your bartender question, I have to admit, I'm a little confused on what you were asking. I interpreted it as what team would someone have to pay me a million dollars to be a fan of? And as a Yankee fan, I have the obligatory Red Sox, but personally... I fucking hate the Texas Rangers. I don't even... Actually, I was about to say something that was going to get me canceled by Yankee fans, so I'm not going to. (laughs) But I fucking hate the Texas Rangers. They're a bunch of crybabies, and you'd have to pay me more than a million dollars to be a fan of the Texas Rangers. Braves. Dave, thank you so much for your call, and thank you to all of our callers. You guys are amazing. We love your calls. We love your questions. We love the commentary. Anyone else listening, if you want to be part of that commentary, give the Breaking Balls Hotline a call. 631-820-7377. As we had touched on earlier, we've had an embarrassment of riches this year as far as no-hitters are concerned. So John and I were bringing the top three back, and this week we got the top three no-hitters of 2021. So John, you want to kick it off with number three? I'm actually going to kick it off with a little bit more. We're going to go with an honorable mention this time. Right, Just because, I mean, think about it. There's been how many no-hitters this year? Enough that we should try to include everyone that we can. Or, you know, no, everyone that deserves it, right? It's worthy. Everyone that's worthy, right, by our arbitrary standards. Uh, so, <laughs> honorable mention for no-hitters in 2021 goes to Carlos Rodon of the White Sox. Now, Carlos wasn't able to quite crack our top three for a couple reasons. First off, this was the 20th no-hitter in White Sox history. They, they churn out these things like... You know, like it's nothing. So it's not that big a deal for them. It was also against the Indians, 
who have been no-hit twice this year. So again, how much does that really say about Rondon versus how much does it say about the Indians? The number three on our top three no-hitters of 2021 is Madison Bumgarner. Now, as far as Major League Baseball is concerned, it wasn't a legit no-hitter, but like we had questioned the episode right after it, who's really deciding that? Where are the record books? The record books, as far as I'm concerned, is just the internet. It will last forever there. And Bumgarner, seven innings. I think there was one error that separated him from perfection over those seven innings, and he deserves a number three spot. I'll tell you where the record book is, right in front of us, where I see Madison Bumgardner as the number three no-hitter of 2021. All right, so the number two no-hitter thrown in 2021 goes to John Means of the Orioles, who pulled it off this past week. Now, it was it was close between him and Rodon for me, who was going to get honorable mention. Rodon, if you remember, was a hit batsman away from a perfect game. John Means came even closer. He was, uh, I forget if it was a pass ball or a wild pitch or whatever it was, a dropped third strike away from a perfect game. That's That hurts, man. That's so close. Um, it was the first one for the Orioles in, oh shit, I should have wrote down the year, 40 years, 50 Something years, so like, like from that. the 60s, yeah. So uh, with all those levels of significance and the fact that clearly he carried it over and he was super hot because he's held the Mets scoreless through like seven innings so far. Um, yeah, John Means, number two no-hitter so far this year. And the number one no-hitter of 2021. Joe Musgrove, the first no-hitter in Padres history. We had no choice but to make it number one. I mean, no-hitters, as we're seeing now, they're, they're becoming even more of a dime a dozen. And especially like John mentioned earlier, Rodon, he was a 20th guy in White Sox history. People don't really remember no-hitters because they're more frequent, way more frequent than perfect games, but you do remember the first of a franchise. So because of that, Musgrove, he easily slides into that number one spot. <laughs> Some kind of joke with you always remember your first, but let's just end the show. I, I got nothing. <laughs> that about wraps it up for Breaking Balls this week. We want to thank our listeners. You guys are amazing. And of course, we want to thank our callers. You guys are awesome. We love those calls. Anyone else listening wants to get in on the fun? Give the Breaking Balls hotline a call, 631-820-7377. You can also find us on Twitter, at BreakBallsPod. And we want to thank our amazing and talented producer and engineer, DJ Bingington. You can find him on Twitter as well, at DJ B-I-N-G-I-N-G-T-O-N. And we will catch you guys next week. Misdemeanor on the floor, pretty boy, here I come. Pumps in the bump, make you want to hurt something. I can take your man, I don't have to sex something.